Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I just want to start with a sort of a odd story, just uh, just because it was just kind of fun or strange, whatever, uh, and just share it with you. These classes, I guess, are are sort of part spiritual diary uh, as much as anything else. So so uh, we'll just file what's about to come under under that category. So. Um, so in all my time of going to the mikvah, uh, Erev Shabbos, Erev Yantav, this, this never happened to me before. So, so it's sort of remarkable to me. This, this just happened, I guess, just a couple of days ago. So um, right before Shabbos. And uh, so, so there I was, and uh, right on, on, on Pico here. And, and I get out of the mikvah, and I see someone's uh, taken my jacket. And I had actually just gone to the bank and withdrawn a, a fairly large sum of money for a trip. And, but I had taken that money and put it in the car. So I was like relieved. So I didn't have to think about that. So, but someone, I was thinking, okay, all right, it's a jacket. It's a black kind of blazer, this one actually. And, um, you know, people have jackets like this. It's not a big deal. It was a mix-up. I... It didn't bother me, you know. I figured, okay, so so that's that's what it is. So I put on my pants, and then I see my shirt and my tzitzis and my kippur are also gone. <laughs> Someone took that as well. So I'm I'm sitting in the I'm sitting there in the sort of the, the dressing room just with my 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 jeans on, and that's basically it, right? And I'm thinking, what am I going to do, you know? And and a couple of I had my car there, and I had my car keys, but a couple of things sort of flashed through my mind. One was, um, there, there's a story, it's actually a fairly long story, but the, the very end of it, I heard from Reb Shlomo, the very end of it is about this guy who had a lot of money, and then he lost all of his money, and then he went to the mikvah, he was reduced to begging, he went to the mikvah, and all of his clothes were stolen, and he started singing and dancing. And they, they thought he had lost his mind. And he said, you know, he, he explained, he said, you know something? Mazel is like a wheel, goes around. And so right now I realize I'm absolutely at the bottom. So it can only go up. <laughs> so that was one of the things that flashed through my mind, you know? And then another thing that flashed through my mind was a story that Reb Shlomo told about his trip to the Soviet Union. And as he was leaving, the, the, the Jews in the Soviet Union were starved for Torah. And, you know, you have to appreciate the fact that religion was against the law, and they, they knew they had Jewish souls, and they knew that this was like riches that they had, but they had no, they had, they had no Judaism. They had no, no, no uh, prayer books. They had no, no anything, nothing, zero. So anything that they could hold on to or learn was like infinitely precious to them. And so as Reb Shlomo was leaving the airport, there were people who were taking him to the airport. He, he took his tefillin, which his father had given him for his bar mitzvah, and he gave it away to someone. And then as he's getting onto the plane, he took off his kippah, his yarmulke, and he gave that to someone. And he said these words, he said, you know, as precious, as, as holy as it is to walk around with your head covered, at that moment, I realized how holy it was to walk around with your head uncovered. 
because he had given he had given his kippah away. So it's like, you know, and of course, just another in a million point series of not judging other people. When he got on the plane, people looked at him without his head covered, you know, and they didn't realize, you know, what, what he had done, you know, the amazing act of tzedakah that he had just done. So that flashed through my mind also. And I was just kind of laughing, just thinking, okay, well, you know, you know, I've had half my clothes stolen, basically. <laughs> and I'll just, uh, I'll just go in my, in my jeans, you know, with, with uh, no, you know, just my jeans and my belly, basically. <laughs> and my head uncovered, I'll just walk to the car. And I was thinking, you know, I know what people are going to say. Man, those happy minion people, you know. <laughs> you know, it was only a matter of time before we saw David Sachs walking down Pico in his underpants. We, we thought it would be sooner, frankly, you know. <laughs> so as I'm sort of just thinking, okay, I'm just going to have to bite the bullet and just kind of walk like this to my car, you know. Someone would, you know, runs into the changing room. He has a, a, a long white beard. He's a, you know, holy guy. And he hands me my tzitzis and an undershirt. And, and he said, I'm so sorry. I took these by accident. And I was like, okay. And he turns around. He's about to leave. And I said, what about my jacket? He says, oh, your jacket's at my house. I said, I need it. <laughs> and he said, okay. So now he goes and he he, he disappears again. So I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, he must live, live pretty close to the mikvah because, you know, he got my other clothes back to me pretty quickly. And I'm waiting, and for some reason, I'm just thinking, okay, you know, he should be here any minute, and it's almost Shabbos, and I'm thinking, I got to, you know, I got to get going. Where is he already? And that, something else flashed. Another story. I'm standing outside the mikvah now, and there's like a canopy over my head. So, by the way, if you ever find yourself without a, your head covered and you want it covered, you can have just a, the intention that the ceiling is your, is your head covering, you know? So I'm kind of standing outside the mikvah and there's a little canopy I'm having in mind. That's my head covering. And I'm kind of looking, I'm, I'm waiting for the car. And it's, you know, it's, it's not coming as fast as I want it to come. And I'm starting to think now, maybe he didn't realize that I wanted it right away, maybe he's going to get it to me afterwards, and I'm just kind of waiting here, and I'm just, you know, fighting all these thoughts, and I'm thinking to myself, don't get angry, that's the main thing, don't, don't be angry. And then I flashed on this story from the, from the Gomorrah, which is, um, two people make a bet, a large sum of money, like a year's salary, one bets the other, I can get Hillel angry, <laughs> right? And... He goes, the other one takes the bet, and he goes in and, and he asks Hillel this whole series of very precise slash annoying questions, like designed to really try his patience. And Hillel patiently answers all of these uh, questions. And so this man is really frustrated because he doesn't want to lose this money. Then he goes, oh, I know what to do. So he's got a new plan. He's going to go to his house right before Shabbos while he's getting ready. And he's going to go and he's going to bother them then. 
because then for sure he's going to be able to get him to lose his temper. By the way, just as an aside, just as a practical lesson, something you should all file away if you don't know it, Rabbi Nachman talks about this, that it's a known thing that right before Shabbos come, comes, couples fight. People get into fights. And, you know, on a here and now level, it makes a lot of sense because it's sort of like there's a lot to prepare before Shabbos. And it's like, what do you mean you didn't go to the dry cleaners? Or what, what do you mean you didn't go shopping for this thing? I need this thing. So there's, there, there are many reasons why people would argue with one another. But on a more spiritual level, he explains that, you know, we say the greeting that we say to each other is Shabbat Shalom. So that there's a spirit, a, an energy of Shalom, of peace that's about to enter into the world. And you know, there's something Newtonian about spirituality that when one energy comes, a, 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 an opposing energy comes to try to knock it off. So a spirit of fighting gets aroused to try to knock off the peace that's about to come in. So you should just know this, that um, you know, if, if there are fights, don't take it seriously before Shabbos, or be careful to avoid them. Just know that that energy is in the air, you know, about to create a fight before Shabbos. So just be careful to avoid it. So that's, that's just something to keep in mind. Anyway, so this person comes to Hillel before Shabbos, while he's getting ready for Shabbos, to ask him more annoying questions. And he interrupts him, and, and it doesn't work. He still doesn't get angry. And now he's a little bit desperate, and he says to Hillel, listen, I want you to know, I've wagered a large sum of money on my ability to get you angry. <laughs> and I'm about to lose it. And Hill says back to him, better you should lose this large sum of money than that Hillel should get angry. So that's the, that's the end of that story, right? So anyway, I'm, I'm thinking about that, just trying not to get angry. And while I'm standing outside the mikveh now, waiting for my jacket, something really unusual happens. I mean, this whole thing was sort of unusual, right? But this was really unusual. I'm standing there, and right next door, like, you know, a few feet away, a person who I've never seen before gets out of his car, out of his SUV, and he walks up to me with a very concerned look on his face, and he said, I want to ask you for mechila. That means forgiveness. I want to ask you for forgiveness if I've done something to you. And I said, I mean, my mind was so rattled. I've just had my clothes stolen from the mikvah. <laughs> and they've been partially returned to me. I'm trying to get home. I'm waiting for this other thing. And this stranger comes up to me and very emotionally, you know, is asking for my, I've never seen this guy before. Like, what do you mean? What have you done to me? You haven't done anything to I, I don't even know what to say to him, you know? I'm like, it's okay. It's fine, you know? And then he looks at me and he's like, no, I'm really sorry. It was very confusing. And, and as I was explaining, telling the story to, to someone after it had happened, they said, you know, they said, you know, I, I had a few cups of wine at this point, and uh, they said, you know, I wonder if that person was like from a past life. 
you know, just trying to slip, slip in some forgiveness at that moment, you know, in this crazy, this crazy time. And that's a, that's a bit of a far out uh, 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 analysis. But it does remind me of something that does go on in, in truth in, in Jerusalem, which is just a, a um, kind of a, 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 a strange thing, but colorful, and I'll, I'll share it if you don't know about it. There are a lot of cats in Jerusalem. And they kind of wander around in, that, you know, in the middle of the night and things like that. And I don't know how reliable this is, whether this is you know, you know, a- actually based on real Kabbalistic thought or whether this is just sort of some sort of uh, folklore that's grown up around it. I, I, can't, uh, I can't tell you about the authenticity of the, of the basis of this. But there is, some people believe that these cats are reincarnations. That, that souls from earlier generations have gone into these cats, and if they come up to you, that they're actually requiring some sort of fixing from, from you. So there are people who walk around um, forgiving cats. <laughs> they call them the, the cat moichlers, right? So, like, people walking around saying, it's okay, I forgive you, I forgive you. <laughs> you know, so I'm thinking, like, who is this guy who's like, I've never seen this guy before. Who is this guy coming up to me, you know? So... Anyway, I, I guess I forgave him. I hope I forgave him. And I, I think, by the way, he must have seen me. Here's my, here's my actual explanation. This, this is the only thing that, on a, on a rational plane that actually makes sense, anyway, to me, which is that I must have been standing outside that thing looking around for the guy to bring my jacket already. And he must have seen me looking in his direction, looking upset, and figured, oh, why is he so upset at me? I must have done something. That's, that's what I think. But, but I, I, I gave that explanation to some fairly intelligent people, and they said, what kind of person who hasn't done anything to you whatsoever <laughs> would then get out of his car and walk up and so emotionally apologize? But you never know. So anyway, that's the best I can do on that point. <laughs> so as I'm, as I'm standing outside, finally the guy comes with my jacket. And then, uh, you know, so I got my jacket back, got my, got my keeper back. Um, and then he explained to me just sort of a, a, a sad ending to the story, actually. He had just actually gotten some very terrible news. And I guess he just ran out of the mikvah and he just grabbed some clothes on a hook, thinking those were his and ran out, you know. So, anyway. Uh, Life in L.A., right? Uh-huh. That's, you know, anyway. So that, that was my sort of odd adventure. And then later on, just as a separate bookend, later on, and I just tell you this because it, just, just to tell you what Reb Shlomo says, more than just this little P.S. to the story. But um, that night at the Happy Minion, as I was leaving, there was like this little boy, this like three-year-old boy, like wandering around Pico Boulevard, like lost, you know? And I thought maybe, you know, and, and I remembered something that I heard Reb Shlomo say. So this is the reason why I'm telling you this part. He said, never walk by a child that's crying. You know? And after I heard that, there's a, you know, there's a strong logic to that. So even if you're at like a, party or some or whatever it is, anytime, wherever you are, if you ever see a child that's crying, stop and 
try and figure out what's going on, you know? So I picked him up and I walked back into the happy minion with him and he belonged to one of the people there, you know? And so, anyway. But just returning lost objects, you know? <laughs> just, anyway. So, so there's a lot that I actually want to share with you. Um, there were some, some, it, basically, on the subject of a solution to death, a solution to death, or perhaps the solution to death. So that's, that's the topic for today. Um, it was an interesting week of learning. And um, I was learning about um, a little bit about Orpah. Orpah is the mother of Goliath. And um, she has a... It's a, actually a very sad, very, very sad story about her. I don't want to go into too much detail because it's, it's, it's a little graphic um, and, and not pleasant. But, but it's, um, she was actually uh, Ruth, Ruth, the grandmother, the great-grandmother of King David, her contemporary. They were married to brothers. And, you know, this whole thing where, where Naomi is going off and it's all chronicled in the book of Ruth, and the two of them are cleaving to her, saying, you know, we want to go with you. And finally, only Ruth stays with her. And Orpah goes her separate way. And it says that night she had a tremendous spiritual fall. You, if you're interested, you can find out the details on your own. She, she had a tremendous spiritual fall. And she becomes the mother of Goliath. You know, one of the great enemies of the Jewish people, this giant who, who's the one who David, you know, kills with the slingshot and it's part of the ascent of David. And very interesting because David is the descendant of Ruth who stays with Naomi. And Goliath is the descendant of Orpah who goes her separate way. After actually really wanting to be with Naomi. That's the really tragic part. You know, and she comes just within a hair's breadth of, so one becomes the, basically the mother of Mashiach, and the other becomes this kind of monstrous entity. You know, very, very interesting, just, uh, just super tragic, and just, if you think how close she came, how close she came. Anyway, so, so I was just kind of looking at these letters, Orpa, just, just looking at her name. And I thought, wow, you know, it's really, it looks familiar, these letters. And then I realized it's the exact same letters as Paro. Faro. And, and uh, of course, the, the enslaver of the Jewish people. Faro, Paro. And I thought, wow, okay, well, that means this name has a lot of strength to it, a lot of energy to it. Remember, because each of the Hebrew letters has a different energy to it. And, and so every word is like a recipe. And, and, and if you look into your own name, you can look at the letters in your own name and, and, and which letters you have in your name and what, 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 what's the recipe to your soul on some level, you know? So I was thinking, whatever this, this is a pretty potent, toxic 
kind of like combination of letters, you know? So, of course, I have to figure out what's the gematria of that, you know? So, because whatever it correlates with is going to be something very, very strong. So I look it up. It's the number 355. It's actually, it's actually, I look it up and I'm shocked actually to find that it's the word from the Torah, besimcha, to be happy. And I realize, wow, that's, to be besimcha, joy, happiness, is the antidote. It's the antidote. Remember, sometimes words that have the same numerical value are opposites. In other words, there's one spectrum, and they're on two different sides of the same spectrum. I'll give you the, the classic example of this. The gematria for Mashiach is the same gematria for the word, um, for, for the uh, snake, Right? The snake from the Garden of Eden. So those are the same number, but opposites. Because it's the same spectrum, but opposites. So here you see it also, that, that paro, orpa, right? On one side, and on the other side, besimcha, joy. Joy has the ability to counteract this aspect of exile. All right, so... So now I want to go deeper into this idea. Because where you see the word besimcha is actually very, very interesting. And um, it's, uh, I'll tell you where it is. This is where it is in the Torah. It's, um, it's uh, in Devarim, De- Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verse um, 47. And uh, I'll just read it for you. It says, now, the context of this is fascinating. And by the way, this is one of the foundations of Rebbe Nachman of Breslov's dedication to joy as, as, the, as the authentic spiritual path, what a person has to be on. And it comes from, from, from what I'm about to tell you, okay? Which is that there are two separate sections in the Torah called the Tolchacha. That means the rebuke, also known as Klala's, and also known, don't like to use the word so much, but just so we're communicating, curses. Okay? And at the end of the second section, or just about at the end of the second section, after it lists all these horrendous things, it says the following. Because you did not serve Hashem your God, besimcha, amid gladness and goodness of heart, we're going to go into that phrase also, when everything was abundant. Okay, and then it says, and then it goes on. Okay, so, so very, very interesting that um, it's very, so, so here you see, A, you see two things from this, okay? One, that it's very important to be besimcha, because here you see that, that these klalas were a, I don't like to use the word punishment, but a fixing for lack of simcha, right? But, but you can derive something else even perhaps deeper than that, which is that simcha is a shield against these things, right? Do you see that if you, if, if these things come because we're not besimcha, theoretically, if we are besimcha, they don't come. Or at least you don't notice them, should they come, right? There's the famous story about um, someone who had a lot of things wrong in their life 
And they go up to, I think it was the Balatanya, uh, or maybe it was the Maggid of Mesrich, and they say to him, he, he says, you know something? Um, he, this person tells the Rebbe all of his problems, and he says, you know who can help you? Go to Reb Zusha. It's a classic Hasidic story. Go to Reb Zusha. So he goes, oh, all right, I'm not sure why Reb Zusha. Reb Zusha, by the way, was famously poor, famously destitute. And he's thinking, I don't know how it is that Reb Zusha is going to be able to help me if, when you can't, you know, you should be able to help me. But okay, you tell me to go to Reb Zusha, I'm going to go to Reb Zusha. He goes to Reb Zusha, his house is completely broken down, he goes in, you know, he's basically in rags. He's a tremendous holy man. And he says to Reb Zusha, listen, um, I have all these problems, and they said that I should go to you because you know how to deal with problems. And he says, what are you talking about? I don't have any problems whatsoever. <laughs> and then he understood. He understood. So you see, besimcha, to be besimcha, to be in a state of joy, it's either a shield against problems, or if you're besimcha, you don't even, aren't even aware that there are problems. You see, because your mind expands. This is the greatness of simcha. See, people always don't appreciate the greatness of what it means to be besimcha and why, like, Hasidic thought especially is so dedicated and takes it so seriously, takes happiness so seriously. It's funny that America today is really catching up on, on the importance of happiness, you know? Because after years and years of, relatively speaking, tremendous wealth, where people are now, you know, well-clothed and live in nice places and are miserable in their nice places and their nice clothes, you know, they're all of a sudden realizing, well, wait a second, th that's not what I wanted to begin with. What I, the only thing I wanted to begin with was to be happy. So now, you know, you have actually even a, a, an actual field in academia that takes happiness very seriously and studies it and does all sorts of things. It's called positive psychology. You can, you can look it up and it's just... Happiness as a discipline, um, academically, is actually a credible field right now in, in the world. You know, it's not considered something like, oh, you know, something light and, and um, you know, whatever. Okay. So, so here you see, here you see uh, from, this, from this verse in the Torah, how it is that, that happiness... To be besimcha is counteracting para, right? Is counteracting this, 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 this notion of being enslaved. Because when a person's mind expands, they don't feel the servitude aspect, right? Like Reb Zusha. By the way, you want to hear an interesting PS. <coughs> when I had my clothes stolen from the mikvah, it was on Reb Zusha's yurt site, someone told me afterwards. <laughs> right? And I was really trying to just smile through it, you know, when it was happening. Um, but anyway, but let's go a little bit deeper. So, so what is this? We can understand to be besimcha. But what is this idea of having a good heart? It says that because we weren't glad... And, um, and, 
Because we didn't serve God with gladness and goodness of heart. Okay? So let's, uh, let's, let's look at, at, at that word. It says, Ubetuv levav. Okay, that's, that's it in Hebrew, with goodness of heart. Betuv levav. And I'm thinking, betuv levav, that's, that, that, those words seem really familiar to me. Where, where do I know those from? And then I remembered the very last halacha in all of the Mishnah Brewer. Not, by the way, that I've been through the Mishnah Brewer, but I, I'm familiar with the last halacha of the Mishnah Brewer. But that references those words. Those, those exact words in a slightly different grammatical form. But, but let me create the, the, the context here for you. It's, 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 the question is, and we have it this year, if you have two months of Adar, when do you have Purim? Because we know Purim happens in Adar. So the Gomorrah explains that it's always in the second month of Adar because you want the two great redemptions connected to each other. Purim and Pesach, because Pesach comes in the next month. You want the two of them connected, right? So you're always going to have Purim in the second month of Adar. So then the question is, what happens on the 14th of Adar in the first month of, 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 of in the first month? So if it's not Purim, is there anything that you do, any special observance to it? So it has a name, it's called Purim Kutten, the little Purim. So it, the Mishnah Bura brings that, okay, don't make any eulogies and don't fast. And then they say, up oh, and have a big meal. And then they say, up, oh, but you know what? Really, you don't have to do any of those things. <laughs> and then, they, then the Mishnah Bureau finally concludes, you know what? Add something to your meal so that you can be with the machmirim, those who are more strict, you can at least be in accordance with their view. And so make sure that on the 14th of the month of Adar, Rishon, the first Adar, that you at least have something extra special to eat, at least a little something extra special, and then that way you'll be okay. And then they bring the following words. You ready? Which I believe is from Mish- Mishle, from Proverbs. It says, Vitov lev, right? right? Do you remember what, what we're mirroring here? Because it said, with gladness of heart. We didn't serve God with gladness of heart. Uvetov levav, right? That's that phrase. And here it brings at the end of this, telling that you should make a little bit of an extra meal for yourself. Vitov lev mishte tamid. Now what does that mean? And this is a fascinating insight into life. It says that a person, that means a person who has a good heart is constantly at a party. (laughs) A mishte is like a feast. Right? So if you have a good heart, you're always at a party. So think about that. Like, you walk into a supermarket. If you have a good heart, what do you think? Look at all this food. <laughs> Look at all these items. There's a, it's like everything is in here. You walk down the street, what do you say? Wow, look at all these buildings and cars and trees, right? You walk into a shul, what do you think? Look at all these people. Wow, they're doing what I'm doing. This is great. If you have a good heart, wherever you go, it's a party. You bring the party with you. So, so that is sort of explaining a little bit because the Torah lumps this together with, um, with being besimcha. So what does it mean to be besimcha? It says, because we weren't besimcha, 
and didn't serve, didn't have our heart full of gladness. So this is giving you the definition of, of, of what a heart full of gladness is. It's, it's, it's like having a good eye for everything around you. you. You are the party. You're the party. And you bring it wherever you go. And then if you have that type of consciousness, then this is the counteracting of the energy of paro, of enslavement. Because how can you be a slave when you're constantly happy? You, you, you're, you're not a slave to anything at that point. Okay, so now I want to go deeper. So, so interestingly, so we just read Parsha's bow. Parsha's bow is the culmination of the ten plagues in Egypt. And now we're basically at this great transition point. In, in the Torah, and hopefully in our lives too, all for the good, because now, next week's Parsha, which we already started reading, is Parsha's B'Shalach. This is all the miracles are now happening in Parsha's B'Shalach. Now we're actually, the Parsha begins with us leaving Egypt. Okay, Egypt has absolutely been decimated, and again, you, you have to just, you have to just understand the enormity of what just happened, Okay. Moshe Rabbeinu is 80 years old. He's tending sheep, his father-in-law's sheep, in the middle of the desert of Midian by Mount Sinai, close to Mount Sinai, but no one knows what Mount Sinai is at this point. The burning bush, which happens at Mount Sinai, but again, we don't know the significance that the Torah is about to be given there. God tells him, you, you, Mr. 80-year-old man, go to the most powerful kingdom in the world and what we're still talking about today, go there, he gets on a donkey, right? Rides with his donkey with his wife and two young kids and take a million plus people out of slavery where they've been slaves for approximately a couple of hundred years. And now, cut to later, Moshe is now leaving with the greatest empire in flames, essentially, behind him. Completely decimated. Decimated. Can you imagine? Of course, God was openly on his side. But can you imagine one man going in and leaving with the entire empire in ashes? With a couple of million people, they say, plus the Arab Rav, plus the, the, the Egyptians who wanted to join the Jewish people with him. Approximately two and a half million people behind him now. Amazing. It's mind-boggling. I mean, this is why we're still talking about it today. Because nothing like this has ever happened before. There's nothing, nothing even close. So, so Moshe is leaving. And, uh, and so Parsha's bow, it's the culmination of the ten plagues. And in that, in this, in this Parsha, we get the nation of the Jewish people gets its first mitzvah um, as a nation. We've had a couple of mitzvahs before, but not they were for individuals. Now we've got the first foundation, okay? And what is it? To make a calendar. 
Very interesting. Now, what is, what is that idea? Because it's very, very, very deep. And of course, Rashi famous, famously asks on the word breishis, the first word of the Torah, why doesn't the whole Torah begin with this commandment of making a calendar? Right? And both deal with time. Remember, breishis, when it says with beginnings or in the beginning, that that actually was the creation of time, that word, when God uttered that word. So, it's, so both are dealing with time in a very intense way. So, so this creation of the calendar, what is this idea? That if we're making the transition from being slaves to free people, we have to learn how to master time and how to elevate time. Right? So that's the very first thing that we're given. Now listen to this. Are you ready? This Pasuk, this, this verse in the Torah that, that, that tells us about the to make a calendar, to master time. What is the, the, the essence of time, if you will, in terms of units? It's the word Shana. Right? Like we talk about Rosh Hashanah. That's the same word, Shana. The new year, the year. That's the sort of the granddaddy unit of time. Shana, time. And in that mitzvah that we have to make the calendar, it uses the word Shana, the year. Now listen to this. Paro, who is our great enslaver, is the same gematria Shana, time, year. Isn't that interesting? Because is there a greater taskmaster or enslaver than time itself? Isn't that fascinating that Paro and Shana are the same gematria, same essence. I mean, what is the greatest taskmaster enslaver of all? Mortality. Our own death. Right? Fascinating, no? But you see here how deep or just a taste of the depths of the Torah. Because Hashem is simultaneously telling us the problem and giving us the solution at the same time. Because you see, the word Shana, this mitzvah, this first mitzvah, the Magalia Mukos, points out something very interesting about this verse. And I guess, remember, the Magalia Mukos, that's the name of his Sefer. Magalia Mukos means the revealer of the depths. He was one of our greatest Kabbalists, one of our greatest rabbis. He was um, the chief rabbi of Krakow in like the 1600s. Okay, so it's really one of our, our greatest. And he points this out. So I guess, I mean, I, I've never looked into this type of thing before, but if he points it out, I guess it's very unusual. The verse that um, the verse that contains this first mitzvah to make a calendar, right? It begins with the letter He and it ends with the letter He. Okay? So He, you know, in Gematria is the number five. So what he points out is that look how in the first mitzvah that we're given, how you see these, this idea of these two fives. Remember, whenever we have firsts in Torah and in life often, that the, the, the first is the DNA for what is about to come. 
You know what I mean? It's like, that's why we take Rosh Hashanah so seriously. Because that's like the DNA of the year. Like, like that's why we want to make sure that our Rosh Hashanah is very strong. Because basically the year is going to be an enlargement of that day on some level. You know, so, so if, if to make the calendar is the, is the very first mitzvah that the people of Israel are given as a nation, then, then let's look into that as the DNA for what's about to come. So again, the Megalia Mukos points out that that verse containing the mitzvah begins with the letter He and ends with the letter He. So what he says based on this is that, that the two He's are like the two sides of the tablets of the Ten Commandments. They're two He's, they're two Luchos, right? They're two tablets that are put together. And He is five, and the other He is five. Well, on the Ten Commandments, you have five on the first, five commandments on the first tablet, five commandments on the second tablet, right? Not only that, but the whole idea is that we're leaving Egypt in order to do what? To get to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And by the way, your son said an awesome Torah. So Yehuda said that if you take the gematria of, Ye- of Moshe, which is 345, and you add 10 for the Ten Commandments, that's 355. That's Moshe with the Torah combating Paro, who's 355. Right? Very good. So, so um, and he says further that you see the two aspects of the Torah, the written Torah and the oral Torah, because the Torah is given with five books, right? There are five books in the written Torah, and there are five students of Rabbi Akiva through which the Torah Shabbat Peh, the oral Torah, comes down through. Again, you see another um, aspect of the entire Torah contained within this, the verse containing the first mitzvah. And then he says that the Torah was given with five kolos, five voices. And so there's another, there's another aspect of the five. So, but I want to sort of continue with this idea and, 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 and point out something else. So again, just to recap, we're saying that, that, um, that the ultimate enslaver, the ultimate para, is time itself. And that in, in giving us this mitzvah to make the calendar, which contains this word shana, year, right? That that's also the solution. Because you see that this this commandment, this verse, contains all of the commandments. And it's through these commandments that we're actually able to achieve immortality. Because through the observance of the commandments, we fill our souls with light, and that light is our ticket to dimensions beyond this world. And so I'd like to suggest something, and I'm, this is just me talking right now, so I, I don't really have the authority to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. That I want to say that these two hays in, in this verse that the Magalia Mukos is pointing out correlate with the two hays in Hashem's name. Remember, you have Yud in hay and Vav in hay. And everybody knows that this bottom hay stands for this dimension, 
But the next hey up, Reb Sadek HaKohen says, stands for Olam Abba, the next dimension. The next dimension is beyond time. Let me explain what I'm saying. Rev. Yitzhak Isaac Chaver, who was in the school of the Vilna Gon and received the Kabbalistic tradition from him, Rev. Yitzhak Isaac Chaver points out that we often have a misunderstanding of this concept of eternity. We think that eternity is the endless expanse of time. In other words, it's just time forever. But he says that's not what eternity is. When we talk about eternity in Torah, what we're talking about is the realm beyond time. Remember, time is a creation. We want to go beyond time. So the bottom hay stands for this realm, which is time-bound. But through the mitzvot themselves, we're able to go to the upper hay, which is beyond time. We're able to leave the mortality, the paro of this world, of this dimension, and through the mitzvahs of the Torah, symbolized by Shana, that verse which contains the two hays, which stands for the Ten Commandments, and the entirety of the Torah, the written in the oral Torah, we're able to go from the bottom hay to the top hay, from the realm of time to that which is beyond time. And that's the solution to death. That's the solution to death. That's how we live forever, through the Torah and the mitzvot. Okay. Have a good week.